Good morning once again. I greet you in the name of Christ. And as we continue our series here, Messages from the Mountainside, I hope that you are truly being engaged by the teachings and preaching of Christ. As we continue our look into Matthew, we'll be looking at Matthew 5 this morning, kind of picking up where we left off from last week, beginning with the 21st verse. It's 16 verses, so it might take a little more effort for you to stand as you're able to hear with attention God's word for us. But let me invite you to do so as this is our gospel reading for today. You have heard it said that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you'll never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And as you sit down, let me say to you, if you are feeling somehow accused by these words of Jesus, there is good news yet today. You know, there's some things in there that are really kind of tough. And especially that part about not being able to make your hair white or black. I'm really having trouble with that one. But there, you know, there are those of you who I know have dealt with divorce in your families, those of you who have dealt with some of the other things kind of named in here, or maybe you feel guilty about that. Here's what I want you to hear today. I mean, Jesus is talking out of his cultural context to people who live in that context. 
And our context is different. But what we really need to hear today is the general theme of what Jesus is trying to say to the people that are all around him. You know, we left off last week with verse 20, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, today, we're not going to uh, reset the map as we've been doing, but, but suffice it to say that we know that we've got Capernaum over here where Eddie is, and we've got uh, Tabga over here where John is, and Gardner is still residing up on the Mount of Beatitudes. I hope the weather is nice up there. Uh, and that was the place where Jesus was speaking from. Now, what we did, this is the Sea of Galilee down here, and we'll do some more of that next time around. But up on the Mount of Beatitudes, Jesus Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and we get it as one of five great sections of teaching by Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. It comes to us in what chapters of Matthew? Anyone? Anyone? Five through seven. Yes, thank you. All right. So if you have not committed that to memory... I want you to make sure that you commit that the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it's not too late to go back and read the entire Gospel of Luke if you missed that one from another, a number of months ago. But as we, uh, as we look at this passage, we realize that uh, it is part of Jesus' great uh, teaching themes that he is sharing with us. Um, Jesus is, is saying to us that, that uh, these are some of the things that you need to remember. You need to commit these things to your memory. These are the things that I'm going to preach about. These are the things that I'm going to teach about. And we know that he took these from place to place, these ideas and themes that he preached for the folks there on the mountainside near Tabga and Capernaum. As Jesus teaches, he realizes that people are going to hear him from a number of different perspectives. He's teaching them about discipleship. He's giving to them, you know, some of his best. But what he gives them in this passage about, um, of four instances, are pretty demanding. He says to them, well, you've heard it always has been said that you should do this or that. But I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to take it into a whole new realm. I'm going to take you to a deeper level. I'm going to take you to a higher place. And some folks heard him rather casually, maybe kind of half listening to what he had to say. And perhaps it was later as he laid out for the people how demanding the road of discipleship was going to be that they realized, you know, I'm just not sure I can do this perhaps then casually falling off or jumping off the bandwagon that they rode along with Jesus. But then there were other people who were hearing those things that Jesus was teaching about, and they heard the depth of what he was trying to say. They heard how demanding, how much commitment it was going to take, how hard it was going to be. And so carefully and prayerfully, maybe even with fear and trembling, they heard those words and made that bold step of saying, yes, yes, that's me. I want to belong to you, Jesus. I'm all in here. Help me do it. Carefully, prayerfully, 
they step in. And then there were those who heard the demands that Jesus gives to his followers there on the mountainside. And they're saying, like, I just don't think I can do it. I'm either unable or I'm unwilling. I'm not sure which it is, but I just can't do that. I can't live life like that. So in these, for instances, Jesus gives us some guidelines. Pray for him. I know, I know, just pray for him. We, we love them all. But as Jesus gives them these for instances, he gives them some ways to picture what that life might look like. I was in the Good Shepherd class this morning, and they had a model of the tent of meeting, uh, the tabernacle that Moses and the children wandered in the desert with. And as uh, Kim was describing the dimensions of the tabernacle area, it was like 150 by 75, I believe it was. Or was that cubits? <laughs> yeah. It was, I said, well, you know, Hart Hall is about 100 by 60, something like that. So if that helps you kind of get an idea of how big the tent of meeting, the tabernacle might have been. Well, Jesus is trying to give his, his people a, an opportunity to see what life like this would look like. He says to them, remember in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, think about who the scribes and the Pharisees were. These were the people who were the experts in the law. They, if anybody knew it all, they knew it all. The Pharisees were the ones who really challenged the people to live by these everyday sorts of rules that applied to everything like eating and drinking and uh, traveling and what you did when you worked and when you weren't supposed to work and all of those things that determined all these different aspects of their daily life. These were the experts these were the folks that people looked up to as examples of how they were supposed to live as God's people called the Hebrews. But then Jesus throws it at them a little differently, doesn't he? He throws it at them. He says, unless your, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about those Pharisees again. Some of them were probably true kind of stuck in all of the rules and they wanted to live by the rules and they wanted to demand that people live by the rules and they were just on top of the people about the rules all the time. But then there were those Pharisees who caught it, who lived it a bit deeper. You remember the story of Nicodemus, the one who came to see Jesus at night. He was one who wanted to take it a step further. He was all ready to hear what it was that Jesus had to say. And when Jesus said, you must be born again, there was a Pharisee who wanted to get it right, who seemed to get it, who seemed to understand. Well, as we look at this passage for today, sure, we have those different people who want to get, the, uh, who want to get it, we have those folks who seem that they will never get it. Into that crowd, Jesus says, you know, they used to say so-and-so, but let me tell you what I think. I think his lessons for the crowd 
and for us on this particular day are simple. Don't take for granted that you know all that you need to know. Don't take for granted that you're doing all the things that you need to do. And don't take for granted that you are the person that you need to become. Let's take each of those one at a time. This is more than following the rules. This is more than the way it's always been. Don't take for granted that you know what you need to know. In these selected verses from Matthew 5, we hear Jesus saying to his disciples that there's a better way of thinking, that there's a way to take it deeper, way to take it higher. There's a way to live more in accordance with what God wills for our lives. There is a way to look at things from a different angle. There is a way to look at things that are really going to cause you to make some changes in your life and in your religious practice. But the only one who likes changing is a wet baby. (laughs) None of us likes change. Change is a threatening proposition for people, especially when it involves a long historical tradition such as that of the Hebrew law, the Torah. Now, when I say the Torah, what am I talking about here? Where, where is the Torah contained? Who can give it to me? First four books and the fifth one as well. That's right. That's the revised Dennis version, I think. (laughs) But it's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Attributed to the authorship by Moses. But yes, indeed, they had seemed to get stuck in that. They wanted to follow the law, but Jesus was saying, this is more than the law. This is more than rules. Let me tell you more. You see, many times we get stuck. We get stuck in things. And, you know, we kind of mixed some of that up this morning. How many of you are sitting in the same pew that you always sit in? Choir, you too. Yeah, all right. <laughs> that's, that's right. All right. I look, I look out there at you every week. I know how you live. <laughs> I know how you come to church, and you're going to come to the same pew, and you're going to sit down. John says, yeah, I sure am. (laughs) That's right. But if we're not careful, we get stuck. If we're not careful, we get stuck in looking at life the same way. We get stuck in living the life the same way. How many uh, (laughs) of... Jeffrey was talking this morning about, I get up every morning, I have my coffee, I have my, you know, I have my eight o'clock conference call. I mean, boom, 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 boom. If we're not careful, we get stuck, right? And if we're not careful, we get stuck in the same way that we think all of the time. But Jesus comes to the people and he says, you're used to living by the law, but let me tell you, that's not all there is. There's more to it than that. Ted Runyon, one of my seminary professors who taught uh, Christian theology, said that, you know, when an earthquake comes, it's the most rigid buildings that fall first. Did you know that about, uh, about how they build buildings in California? They build buildings so that they can even kind of sway a little bit when an earthquake comes. 
they build them with, uh, with foundations that have kind of almost rubbery material down in the bottom so that they can absorb some of the shock as the earthquake comes. But it's the most rigid buildings, the ones that are built so tightly that they can't absorb any of that force and energy. That when the earthquake comes, they crack and fall. Well, I think that's, uh, that's one of the lessons that we need to learn, that if we are so stuck in our thinking that our thinking cannot absorb some of the complexity of life, then the force and the energy of life will simply tear us apart. We can't afford to be stuck. Think about the Apostle Paul's discussion of unity with the church at Corinth. In the first letter to the Corinthians, He begins talking about how they're divided, all the things that are tearing them apart. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Paul. I belong to Christ. People say, oh, you know, claiming different things. And it was dividing them. And then he talks about the things that unite them. And one of those favorite passages that we love comes from the 12th chapter where Paul describes the unity of the body and how even though we're all different, Some are a hand, some are an ear, some are an eye. You know, we all are different. But when the body comes together, when all the parts come together, the body functions as a whole, as a unified whole. But then how does he close the chapter? Who can tell me the last line of 1 Corinthians 12? It says, but let me show you a still more excellent way and then we get what the love chapter sure you want to be unified but if you really want to be unified let me take it a step further I want to show you an even more excellent way as Jesus as Paul talks about that He says, you know, if you will live in the way of love, you may have found unity as the body, and that's great. But if you can live in the way of love, that's even better. Well, likewise, Jesus was attempting to move his people closer to the will of God, not by moving them away from the law, but rather by fulfilling the law, by taking it a step further, by helping them to lead a deeper life. You know, our world is changing at a torrid pace. Hmm, Over the last 40 years, we've seen the breakup of the Soviet Union and the the end to the Cold War. We've seen uh, ever-increasing global religious conflict. We've endured 9-11. And it seems that we have been involved in constant social upheaval. Not to mention a Congress that can't seem to work together. (laughs) But our, our nation has experienced change at this torridly rapid pace. There will be challenges to Christian ethics all around us in a rapidly changing society. And the rigid buildings will fall first. I wonder how Jesus would lead us. I wonder if he would come to say... You know, they used to say, but let me tell you what I think. 
we don't need to think, we don't need to take for granted that we know all that we need to know. Secondly, don't take for granted that you're doing what needs to be done. It's one of my favorite themes. When we always do what we always did, we always get what we always got, right? If things were always done the same way, nothing new would develop, everybody might feel a little bit more secure because nothing would ever change. But we'd have no new technologies, no new ideas, no new thoughts for the process, no much of anything. Hmm. Yesterday, as, um, as we shared in Bob DeVille's funeral service, uh, afterwards, Suzanne Parker came up to me and she said, you know, I come to these things and I hear about somebody like Bob all this stuff that was part of his life, so many things about him that I didn't know. And I do that all the time. I come to funeral services and I, and I hear things that I just don't know about those people. How, how can I get to know those things that are part of people's lives? How, how can I really engage with them? I said, well, here's what I think we need to do. We need to invite every single person to Wednesday Night Live because it's the heartbeat of the congregation's fellowship, right? But then, when they come to Wednesday Night Live, they need to sit at a different table every week. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. That's right. And you know where this is going, don't you? Yeah, that's right. You've been in that same pew, in that same place, greeting the same people week after week after week. And half of you over here don't know half of you over there. And half of you over here don't know half of you over there. You need to mix it up and get to know people. And if you really want to share the peace of Christ with somebody else, engage them in their life where they are. Don't feel like you know all the things that you need to know. Don't think you've done all the things that you need to have done because if you're stuck... There are a lot of things that won't get done and a lot of things that Jesus is calling you to. But if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. Churches and church people often resist change because they don't want to be changed. And that's just why certain Pharisees heard and hated Jesus so. They hated his teachings because they called for a change in how they looked at things. They hated the ways that he ignored their old accepted religious traditions. And they, the religious leaders in their community, were not even interested in exploring the possibility that what he had to say might come from God. Don't take for granted that you're doing what needs to be done. And then last, don't take for granted that you are what you need to become. If we never experience change in our lives, we will always be what we always were. John Wesley knew that. 
And he preached over and over and over again about repentance and conversion and sanctification and how God brought change and new life for every person. So as he, the father of Methodism, would preach amongst the people, they knew that they could be more than they had become, that God had more things in store for them. It was the message that Jesus brought to these people on the mountainside, that they weren't going to be who they were the rest of their lives if they wanted new life in God. But if we never experience personal changes of faith, we'll always be who we always were. You know my favorite little parable about this, about the duck church. Maybe some of you haven't heard it. Well, we'll see. But it's about the duck church where at the beginning of the duck service, all the ducks come waddling in and they sit in their duck pews and they sing their favorite duck hymns, generally down by the riverside and shall we gather at the river. They say their duck affirmation of faith. They hear the duck sermon, which goes much like this. Ducks, you have wings, you can fly. The second point is, ducks, you have wings, you can fly. And the third point, much like the first two, ducks, you have wings, you can fly. They all say their duck amens. It's time for the duck offering, after which they sing the ducksology. That's right. They sing their duck closing hymn, and, and they duck out. <laughs> They all waddle home because they're stuck. But friends, you don't have to be stuck. You don't have to be who you've always been. And in fact, if you sit in that place and if you stay stuck in that place, you'll find it hard to hear the message that Jesus was sharing on the mountainside that day. An evangelism committee met to do their annual planning and much like many churches, they just asked the questions, well, are we going to do this year what we did last year? Some would have answered, well, sure. Somebody said, well, are we going to have a revival next year? And the preacher is sitting there in the meeting and he's thinking to himself, Lord God, I hope so. We need revival. But if we take for granted that we have become all that Jesus had in mind, we will always get what we always got. That's what Jesus said to them 2,000 years ago. And that's what he says to us today. His is the more excellent way. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to turn to page 13 in your hymnal and join in the great thanksgiving before our holy meal. As we share in this time, realize that this is a a wide open table available to any who would receive this gift of grace. And as we share in it, you know, it just occurred to me, Some of you are going to be thinking, okay, well, now, 
how much bread do I get? And do, do I tear it off? Do they tear it off? Do, do, how much, how deep do I dip it in the cup? Does, and do I eat it here? Or what if, I, what if I eat the bread before it goes in the cup? You worried about the rules. Are you worried about what you've got on today? What will everybody think? Move past that today. Engage the Jesus of the mountainside today.